So today we come to the conclusion of our series designed for a purpose. So if you think of the church as a team, okay? We're a team. God has designed each one of us to play a particular position on that team. So instead of our thinking of the pastors as the only ones who are in the game on the field doing all the ministry, while everybody else is up in the bleacher section cheering the pastors on, you know, go pastors go, that's not the picture we have in scripture. Instead, the Bible would suggest to us that you're in the game, you're on the field, you're doing the work of the ministry. You say, well, wait a minute, Rich, uh, what do the pastors do? If we're involved in doing the ministry, what's the role of the pastor? The pastors are on the sidelines. They are serving as assistant coaches under the lead coach, the head coach, Jesus Christ himself. So that's the picture we should have of the church where God's dream team, each one of us called upon to have a role in the ministry of the church. Now, in order to discover the particular position that God has given each of us to do, we need to find our design. And that's what this whole series has, of course, been about. Here you see the acronym and what it stands for. We pay attention to our desires. What are they? Those are our passions, the things that we really care about, things we love to do. We pay attention to our life experiences. We've talked about key life experiences that have shaped us. We pay attention to our skills. What are they? Natural and developed talents and abilities. We have those. We pay attention to our individuality. That's our personality. We're all wired differently, and that plays a part in our career goals, as well as our ministry in the life of the church. And we pay attention, as we learned last week, to our spiritual gifts. We find those five areas, and then we're able to determine our niche, the position we're to play on God's team. Now, in light of all of that, I want you to notice these verses of scripture from Ephesians chapter four. Jesus Christ gave these gifts to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers, their responsibility is to do what? To do all the ministry while you're up in the stands? No. Their responsibility is to equip God's people. That's you to do his work. So you're doing the work. You're building up the church, the body of Christ. And as verse 16 indicates, as each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Now, some of us have been designed by God to contribute to the internal spiritual growth of the church. And if that's you, then your primary area of focus is probably gonna take place inside this building. Others of us have been designed by God to contribute to the external numerical growth of the church by involvement in missions and evangelism. And so if that's your role, that's your position, then for the most part, your primary focus is gonna take place outside this building. But all of us have been designed by God to contribute to the health and the mission and the well-being of God's church. 
So, are you in the game? Do you know what position God wants you to play? And are you playing it for his glory? Well, today as we conclude this series, we're gonna be giving an opportunity to explore how each one of us can fulfill our design that God has entrusted to us to take some action steps in order to get in the game. First of all, though, we're gonna consider from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the last part of this chapter, just how important it is for all of us to be involved in the game of service. So Paul's instruction in this passage can be summarized under five key points, which are on your sermon notes. I encourage you to take notes during the teaching today. And here's the first of his five, that the body or the team has many parts, but it's still a unit. Many parts, still a unit. Now, Paul begins this section by giving us an analogy. He draws our attention here to the human body, and he says, you know, go from the top of your head down to your feet. Two things are true of your body all the time. One is that your body is a unit, it's a whole, and the second is it's made up of many different parts. So we don't miss that, Paul states it twice. Look at verse 12. Just as the body is one and has many members, so that's the first time he says it, we're one, we're a unit, but we have many different organs, many different limbs, many members, and then he says it again. All the members of the body, though many, are one body. Well, then he applies that analogy to the church. He says, so it is with Christ, by which he means the body of Christ, the church. The body is one, has many parts. Members of the body, though many, are one body. So then in verse 13, he's going to emphasize for us the first part of this, that we are united. We are one. We are one body. Verse 14 is going to emphasize the fact that we have many different parts. So verse 13 is actually answering the question, how in a world can it be said that we are one body when there's so much diversity that marks our church? How can that be? Paul's answer is to say it's all the result of the work of God's Holy Spirit. So look with me at verse 13. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, doesn't matter what your employment status is, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So we really are the same body, the one team, the church, because of our common experience in the Holy Spirit. Paul says we're all baptized into one spirit. So if you're a Christian, at the time that you became a Christ follower, when you were born again or regenerated, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to indwell within you, just as he's indwelling now in this body, the church. Now I'm wondering today if this phrase, the baptism of the Spirit, is something new for you. It's been around, it's been somewhat controversial over the last hundred years or so in congregations, denominations, but what in the world does it really mean? Well, let me answer that question by means of an analogy. If you've ever seen somebody get baptized in water, City Church every summer for the last number of years now has had a, 
uh, summer baptism at Lake Harriet. Perhaps you have observed individuals being baptized there or elsewhere. For somebody to have a true biblical baptism in water, four elements are absolutely essential. First of all, you need somebody to do the baptisms, right? The baptizer. Often that's a pastor. Doesn't have to be a pastor. Could be somebody else who's authorized by the church to do it. But you need a baptizer. You need people to baptize. That's always a good thing when you're going to have a baptismal service, you know. So you need a baptizer. You need people to baptize. You need an element into which they're going to be baptized. Water, that's a good idea. And fourthly, you also need a purpose. What is the purpose of the baptism? Well, it serves biblically as a sign of our new life in Christ. So four elements. Those four elements also help us to understand this baptism in the Holy Spirit. You need a baptizer. Who's that? Well, the Gospels referred to this baptism of the Spirit some seven times and we're told that Jesus was going to be the baptizer. So he's the baptizer. So who gets baptized in the Spirit? Well, Paul's answer here in this verse is we all, by which he means all Christians. So this isn't something reserved for the more dedicated among us. This is for all believers. If you're a Christ follower, it doesn't matter what your age is or anything else about your background, you have been baptized in the Spirit, all right? What's the element into which we're immersed? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. For in one spirit, we were all baptized. And what is the purpose of the baptism in the spirit? It's to incorporate us into the body of Christ, the church. We were all baptized into one body. Well, then Paul kind of changes the analogy on us. And he says, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So that's his way of saying the Holy Spirit has entered our innermost being as a church. So all of us, as Christ followers, have been immersed in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out into the life of the church, creating this spiritual unity, okay? We are a community of the Holy Spirit. Wow, what a thought. And that's what is so amazing about this church. I mean, we're so different. We come from different cities, different backgrounds, different life experiences. Some racial diversity is marked out by our church, different levels economically. All of these things are true of us, and yet we are one. We're one in Christ because of the work of the Holy Spirit. You say, okay, Rich, I'm, I'm, I'm getting all of this, but what in the world is the connection of all of this to our service? Well, here's the answer. When it comes to this topic on the mind of the Apostle Paul, which is the use of our gifts, it means that if we really are one, I need to pull my weight, okay? It means I need to get involved. I need to stop sitting on the sidelines, stop being preoccupied with what I can get out of the church, what the church can do for me, meeting my needs, and instead I need to be concerned about meeting the needs of others. Why? Because while the body has many parts, it's united. So that's the first of the five principles that the apostle brings to our attention. Now, secondly, we learn that though we are many, each part is important. Now, it's as if the apostle says, let's pretend, okay? Let's use our imaginations. 
Suppose the parts of your body could talk. What might they say? Well, he says, let's hear from the foot, verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body, would it? Oh, of course not. So let's think about the foot. Go ahead and wiggle your toes a little bit, make sure that everything is still active down there, okay? Think about your foot. Have you ever put yourself inside the shoes of a foot? I mean, the foot thinks about the life of a hand and goes, oh man, it would be amazing if I could be a hand. After all, when people greet each other, they don't shake feet. What do they do? They shake hands. So here I am, a foot stuck in a sock, which is stuffed inside of a shoe. I produce bunions and corns and calluses. At times, I smell. And so the poor foot thinks, oh man, compared to the ham, and I'm a nobody. I'm not important around here. Well, as Paul is thinking about the foot, he moves on to think about the ear. Let's imagine that the ear is speaking. Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. Well, that would not make it any less a part of the body, would it? So think about your ear right now. I know some people have very big ears, and they're rather self-conscious about that. Ears can be baggy, they can be thick, they produce wax. Some ears have hair in them, some are scaly. Why don't you go ahead and look at the ears of the person sitting in front of you right now, okay. Okay, maybe we don't want to do that. So the ear notices how the eye sees colors and objects and flashes and blinks and goes, oh man, if I could, if I could be an eye, that would be incredible. I'm not important. Well, then Paul says, if the whole body were an eye, can you imagine a six foot, two inch eyeball? You know, there it is, that's the eye. Where would be the sense of hearing? Well, then he thinks, okay, how about the body is an immense ear. If the whole body were an ear, just a big ear, that's all it is. Where would be the sense of smell? I mean, it could hear, but it couldn't do anything else, right? Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? Well, it wouldn't be a body. It would be a magnified organ, kind of grotesque and unattractive, right? So he said, what in the, where's he going with all of this? What's his point? Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members, the parts in the body, each one of them as he chose. So here's the foot thinking, I'm not important like the hand. And Satan says, you know what? That's right. You're not important. Who are you to speak up in a group when you're surrounded by eyes and, and hands and, and all of these other things? Yeah. My uncle Al was severely diabetic. And so by the time I became a teenager, he had had both of his legs amputated above the knee. And uh, he knew the value of feet. And the body of Christ, the church, not only needs eyes and ears, it needs feet. It needs parts which are never perhaps displayed. So I wanna ask you a question this morning. If God has brought you into this body and made you a part of our church, are you functioning? And if you're not, what button do I push to get you involved? Do I push 
The guilt button? Ah, that's not gonna work, is it? Maybe for a week. The manipulation button? No, that's not gonna work either. So what button do I push? Well, I just want you to know that you are needed, you are important, you are gifted, you are wanted, okay? Now you could respond, oh, come on. Nobody's indispensable. And that, of course, is true. I mean, the church could get along without one or two feet. We could survive, didn't have, you know, feet. But I think of how much better off my Uncle Al would be if he had both of his. And then think how much better off the body of Christ at City Church would be if you were willing to be the foot or the eye or the hand that God wants you to be. Why? Because you are important and you are needed. All right, thirdly, we learn that though we are many parts, we're interdependent, interdependent. Notice now what Paul says beginning at verse 21. The ear, so once again he continues this language imagining an eye speaking, only this time it's very different. Instead of the body part thinking of itself as inferior, as unimportant, this time the body part thinks of it itself as superior to the others. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, you know, hand, take a hike. No, the eye is very dependent upon the hand. I mean, the eye can see things, but it takes the hand to pick them up. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The only way the head can move is through the activity of, of, the, of, the, of your feet, right? Because each is dependent upon the other. All right, verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. No, that's true. Somebody mentioned to me recently that the smallest bones in the human body are tucked away in the inner ear, very important for hearing and for balance. I have a balance disease that I got about eight or nine years ago, and I'm very well aware of the importance of those little bones functioning properly inside my inner, inner ear. So Paul's point here is to emphasize this matter of interdependence. We need all of these body parts, even the small ones, all right? So in addition to the weak parts being indispensable, look at what else Paul says to emphasize interdependence. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. I mean, think of fingernails, for example. You know, uh, compared to the eye maybe, or to the hand, we might think they're not very important, but you know, we, we trim them, we file them, some people color them, or for that matter, think of the hair. Compared to the eye or hand, you know, is that really all that important? But we sure do fuss over it, many of us, some of us. All right, well, in our, Unpresentable parts, what's that? Well, our sex organs are treated with greater modesty. We cover them up with nice clothes. So there are all of these parts in our bodies, but there is this interdependence. Now, why is that so? Well, 20, verse 25 explains why. God created us to be interdependent, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. I mean, that's true, isn't it? If you've ever stubbed your toe or injured a finger, creating all of this discomfort and pain, you know how that can affect your sleep at night, 
I mean, you're not a very happy person. Well, that in, maybe it's infected. But once that gets healed, wow, you're sleeping, you're energized, you feel great all over, and it's just wonderful. Well, so the church is to be a place, Paul is emphasizing here, if one member is honored, you know, all rejoice together. The church is to be a place where we receive comfort and encouragement from one another. Now, I doubt that anybody here would disagree with that. The difficulty, though, comes in carrying it out. I mean, for example, if you're hurting emotionally today, if this has been a tough week for you, does anybody around here even know? I mean, over the last few weeks, did you express to anybody an area of need that you have in your life, even once? How about the other side of things? During the same period of time, did you express appreciation to anybody around here for their volunteer ministry? Maybe it's somebody who's caring for your kids right now in our children's ministry. Maybe it's our tech support. Maybe it's those who do financial uh, work on behalf of the church. So we're to rejoice with others and receive support from one another. Why? Well, Paul's answer is because we're a body. We're made up of many different parts, but there's this interdependence. All right, there's a fourth part of this analogy as he continues, and that is to say this, that there are many parts, but there's no such thing as an exclusive member of the body. So you don't describe your physical body exclusively in terms of your eyes or your hands or any other body part. Well, the same thing is true with respect to the church as we're thinking about this matter of gifts, spiritual gifts. Notice verses 27 and following. Paul now says, now you are the body of Christ and individually you're members of it and God has appointed in the church and now Paul's gonna describe three different ministers and he's gonna rank them. First, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. Now it's not clear as to why he's ranking these three. Some think it's because of the role that these three have in starting a church, okay? They tended to appear in this order. So when you're first starting a church, planting a church, like a little seed, that's the person who has the apostolic gift to start churches. And then your prophets come along, those with a preaching gift, and teachers come along to further ground the church in the things of Christ. Okay, so maybe that's what, why Paul is ranking them. We really don't know. It really doesn't tell us, but that's a suggestion. But this much is clear. He's certainly not saying that one is more important than the others, all right? And then he lists other gifts, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now, where does the gift of tongues appear in this list? Well, you say it's, it's, it's last, it's the last one he mentions. Okay, why? Because it doesn't belong in the church? Because it's supposed to be phased out of existence? No. Why? Why is it last? Well, it's last because it's not the exclusive gift that the Corinthians thought it was. So to exalt as the greatest of gifts, the sign of spirituality and of maturity, which is what the Corinthians were doing with the gift of tongues, is therefore a very foolish thing to do. 
I mean, read over the questions that follow, and Paul certainly expects a no answer to each one. Are all apostles? Well, of course not. Are all prophets, all teachers, do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. So what's his point? The point is that no one spiritual gift is the exclusive mark of spirituality. And so we're not to allow any gift to cause us to regard the others with a spirit of indifference, all right? Now, if some denominations today continue to do that with the gift of speaking in tongues, speaking in some language that isn't understood, whether it's heavenly or earthly language, not understood, if some denominations want to regard that as the sign of spirituality, I don't think our denomination does, but I do think it's possible for our denomination, for example, to raise up and exalt other kinds of gifts, like, for example, the gift of pastor. Yeah. Now, I hope that the next person you have to serve you as the senior leader of this church is amazing, a great fit, somebody who accomplishes, you know, leads you in fulfilling the mission and the vision that God entrusts to you as a people. That would be awesome. But whoever this pastor is going to be, that pastor doesn't have it all figured out, doesn't have all the answers, is a broken person just like me and, and like you struggles with kids, struggles at times in the marriage, you know, has some issues here and there in life, just like everybody else. So it's not the idea of the super pastor who can do it all. Now, I think we tend in our denomination maybe to elevate other gifts. Perhaps we even do as a church, like teaching or the gift of leadership. Gifts, in other words, that are very task-oriented and cognitive in nature. But what about people with creative gifts? Or what about those who work behind the scenes? You see, Paul is emphasizing the fact here that each Christian has a gift and each is to be used for the benefit of the body. So there's no such thing as an exclusive gift. All right, it leads them to one more key principle and here it is. Though the body of the church is to use all of its gifts, it's to desire the greater gifts. Now, Paul ends this chapter, verse 31, by saying, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Does that seem strange to you? I mean, here he's been emphasizing variety, interdependence, we're all needed, we're all wanted. And then he says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. I mean, how can you talk about greater gifts having destroyed that kind of thinking, right? Well, what Paul is really doing is preparing us for what he's going to be teaching us in chapter 14. Chapter 13 is a parenthesis. It's about love. It's the great chapter in the New Testament about love and how we're to use our gifts motivated by love. Well, then he comes into chapter 14, having emphasized the importance of love, by saying that all of the other gifts are greater than tongues when it's not interpreted. So, they should all be desired for this reason. They're all intelligible, right? And being intelligible, they can build up the entire church. The gift of tongues, when it, somebody shares a tongue, 
but it's not interpreted, who understands it? Nobody does, so the only person who's benefiting from that is the individual, not the congregation, because the church can't understand it. And so that's why Paul tells this church, obsessed with tongues, eagerly desire the greater gifts. All right, let me close with this thought. You know, in one sense, the human body isn't worth a whole lot. This was uh, brought to my attention and my wife Valerie's attention the other day. We were in New Jersey to attend a memorial service for her sister who suddenly passed away a few weeks ago. And on the way from the airport down toward the place where the memorial service was to be conducted, we stopped off at the funeral home to pick up um, the urn containing um, Valerie's sister's remains. So out walks this funeral director with a paper bag containing this urn with the ashes of Valerie's sister. Paper bag, urn, ashes. And then he brings out another bag containing the clothes that she was wearing when she went to the hospital a few hours before she died of, of heart failure. I mean, is this it? This is the human being that we knew and loved and now it's ashes in an urn and some clothes in a bag, is that it? Somebody figured out that the average body chemically is made up of a little lime, enough salt to fill a small shaker, enough iron to make one nail and some water. Total value, about a buck fifty. But you put those chemicals together to form you, and you are of incredible worth and value in God's sight. And the same is true of this body, City Church. I mean, you look around, doesn't appear as though we're all of that significant, perhaps old people, young people, all kinds of people. But when Jesus Christ decided to leave heaven, where he existed with the Father and the Spirit in unbroken fellowship without suffering, where he was constantly being worshiped by all of the angels to come into this broken world of ours and to die the most excruciating form of execution ever devised, death by crucifixion. When he thought about doing that, he thought you were worth it. And he thought the same was true of the person sitting next to you and in front of you and even behind you. So you are of great worth to God. And as a church, we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus wants you to know today, you're now part of this body. You're part of the team. You may be a hand or a foot or an eye or an ear or something else, but you are important and you are gifted and you are needed to serve. And so if this body is to be healthy, if it's to be growing, we need you to get involved. We need you to plug in, to volunteer, and to serve. And so today, I think it's time for some of you to take an action step in order to make that happen. So this is what I would like you to do. If you take out now this car that you were given as you entered the worship center today, it has the uh, template on the back, but turn it over. And you notice at the top it says, finding my niche. I'm going to read this over and give you a moment to fill it out. So you might want to grab a pen. And I'm going to invite the team to come. And they're going to be playing for us 
as we uh, take some time to go over this and fill it out. When you get all done, as we exit the service today, following the end, there are baskets at each of the doors. And I'm just gonna ask you to drop this off in one of those baskets, okay? So let's, let me read this to you so you know what you're to do. Number one, I am willing to spend X number of hours a week in volunteer ministry serving the mission of City Church. Now maybe right now you can't do anything. And maybe because of a various factors in your life, it's just the way it is. Okay, we get that, we understand. But if you are not serving or are serving, um, please indicate what your answer would be there. Number two, when I reflect on my present area of service, it's not a good fit. It's okay, I like it, I love it. So are you in an area of ministry that reflects your design, your desires and interests? My next step or steps in my design journey will be, and you're asked to check all that apply, complete my design profile and turn it into the church office. A pastor will reach out to me with my unique report, reflect with the Holy Spirit in Bible reading and prayer and turn in my design profile later on, perhaps you know in a few weeks, Dialogue with one or two others about my design and where I am best suited to serve. I'll try or continue serving with. And then I need to cons uh, consider changing my employment to reflect my design. Maybe that's the application for you or some other area. I'm willing to make time in my busy schedule to serve you by serving others. Father, as we consider this commitment of ministry to you, we realize it can be difficult or scary, but you never call us to do anything without equipping us and empowering us to do it. And so help us to be willing to step out in faith, to discover our unique design in order to do that which you are calling us to do. And then may you use each of us to make a difference for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray.